place of the lion really mirrors that hideous strength. And it may be worth kind of before you finish the season on that hideous strength, kind of doing a tag episode. Um, I always say that people should read outside of planet Paralandra and then place of the lion because Lewis is writing a Williams novel, right? The normal everyday English seat countryside. And then the supernatural comes crashing in. Yeah. And so I think that Lewis is kind of under Williams's influence. Um, so kind of having a Williams mouthwash before reading that hideous strength prevents the, uh, some of the whiplash. Yeah. Like what the heck was Lewis doing? No, you can definitely see the influence. So, I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll do that. I'll make sure I read it sometime soon here. And then yeah. maybe, maybe I'll have you back on to talk about place of the lion. Oh my gosh. Or, you know, there's lots of, maybe Charlie star. Uh, I did. Uh, so with Charlie, I think I did with Williams with Charlie. Okay. Um, no, I'm doing Barfield with Charlie. But anyway, yeah, any guy, anytime I can help, you know, I'm I'm with you. Well, you picked the right chapter to come on for for that hideous strength because this is my favorite <laughs> chapter. Is oh it my your... gosh! Right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I understand it all, um, but have you heard the Rabbit Room recording? I have. Yeah, which okay. is pretty much just the whole first section, I think. Right. Right. So evidently when Bill Gresham came to visit the boys in 1960, um, not long after Joy died, he brought out a tape recorder. And so Doug got that tape and you can, at one point, I forget which of the three recordings it is. You can hear, I think Warney's foot on the stair, you know? And so, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I don't remember which one that was. I know it's not this one, uh, but I forget which one it is, but they're all so good. Just, I mean, yeah, well, this chapter, I mean, it's part of this chapter that he actually reads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he does the thing from Paralandra. Yeah, I think it's in Paralandra where you hear the steps. Um, Okay, yeah, yeah. I was just listening to that the other day, and I'm pretty sure that's the one where I heard it. This is the one that hit his strength where he stops and coughs in the middle of it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, Shoot. So I'm going to say, do you have... um, there's also a kind of a brief preface that I think Lewis does to the, I think the paperback. What is this? Um, oh, no. So the abridged, that hideous strength, comes out in 55. Okay. And he does a preface that isn't anywhere else. Have you seen that? I have. I've read it. I don't have the abridged version okay. myself, though, because I can't find it. And I can only find it for a lot oh, wow. of money. Is this the one where he says... I'm just looking at it quickly where he gives that little dig about people wanting to be shorter. Uh, um, I myself prefer the more leisurely pace. I would not wish even war and peace to the fairy queen any shorter, but some critics may well think this abridgment is also an improvement. That, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. 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 There it is. I myself prefer the more leisurely pace. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a jab. Uh, yeah, probably so. Well, and I think he's the only one who ever wished the fairy queen to be longer. This is Men with Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. All right, 
right, welcome to Men with Chest. Today I'm joined by Andrew Lazo, who is one of the hosts of the great uh, Pints with Jack C.S. Lewis podcast. Uh, he is also an Episcopal priest and the Lewis aficionado. Joseph, it's great to spend some time with you. I really enjoyed uh, being together during a uh, during Lewis Reading Day, and I'm glad that that opened some doors to so many more friendships. And man, I'm looking forward to diving into what you're what you're getting into this season. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, for sure. And you picked the best chapter, I think, of that hideous strength, chapter 13. They have pulled down deep heaven on their heads, and this is where we really get Merlin coming on the scene, dialoguing with people, and it's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I cherry picked that. I was really hoping that, uh, uh, I think Michael Ward's doing, um, doing, is he doing 15? Yeah, he is. Okay. Yeah. He's, and, and he's the perfect guy for that. So yeah, no, no, I was, I was grateful to be here. All right. Well, the first section of this chapter 13, uh, we, we have this scene where Merlin and Ransom are talking and it's kind of like a battle of the wits and some riddles. Yeah. And, uh, one of the interesting things with this, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff here, but um, we have Lewis using the word Numenor, and of course he used uh-huh. Numenor in the preface of the book, and so there's a little uh-huh. bit of a um, you know a nod to Tolkien here and the wager they made of who's going to write the books we like, but at this yeah. point Tolkien doesn't have any completed item yet. Uh, what do you think? Right. Lewis is meaning by Numenor. Is he actually talking about what Tolkien means by it? Or do you think there's something else to it? Yeah. You know, I think that, excuse me. I think that uh, as we were kind of chatting about with some other ideas uh, before we got started here, I think that Lewis is kind of tossing out a few ideas. And if I'm not mistaken, Tolkien objected to Lewis's use of Numenor and his misspelling of it, right? Because he spells it with an I instead of an E. Um, and of course he talks in experimental criticism about the numinous and he and Tolkien are kind of big on. So Newman comes from the word nod. It means literally a nod and it's Zeus's ability or Jupiter's ability to either say yes or no. It's so it's a symbol of this kind of this godly authority. And you have a little hint about Jupiter um, just in the opening, in the second paragraph, a large tin basin fell clattering into the sink. And of course, tin is the uh, is the metal associated with Jupiter. So, but I'm not sure. I think he is kind of leaning a little bit on Tolkien. And I think he's kind of tossing an idea out. So I don't know. What, what was your take on that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure because he says, uh, well, let's see who asked that. Uh, your masters let you play with dangerous toys. He said, tell me slave, what is Numenor? And that is Merlin asking ransom that question. And then ransom, mm-hmm. he says the true West, but in Tolkien's mm-hmm. mythology, I believe Valinor is the true West and Numenor is actually mm-hmm. to the East of it, I think. So I, my, <laughs> my thought was that, Lewis just didn't know, uh, you know, Tolkien's full story played out yet. And they had probably discussed right. this idea of Numenor, but hadn't, uh, you know, he, Tolkien hadn't finished the product. And so Lewis, he liked to like grab things from his friends and he's like, well, I'm going to take this sure. and put it in. And it wasn't completed yet. So it doesn't actually line up with the end product that Tolkien produced. Right. Right. You know, it's that great story that Walter Hooper tells, um, having heard uh, from Tolkien 
the you know Tolkien had all the maps and the charts and the languages and the histories and um and uh, Tolkien reportedly said you know Jack he had to have a story and that story was written to keep Jack quiet so I think that you know I'm not sure where in the manuscripts Lewis was might be interesting to go back to some of the letters in 42, 43, but there aren't a lot of letters between Lewis and Tolkien that are excellent. But I think that these are, you know, definitely some ideas that are floating around and the idea of a true West, right? The idea of the real country within the country, right? Logers within Britain. And also the idea of kind of an elevated race, you know, a, a race that was truer or a, a time that was better and has, has since fallen some. It, you know, there's at least, I think we're nibbling at least around the edges of that. And Logris comes up later in the chapter. Um, Absolutely. And that is more of the Williams influence. And so I, I, I kind of see it as Lewis being like, well, I, I like this idea from Williams. I like this idea from Tolkien. I'm going to kind of put them in together. And they kind of both mean the same thing as the way Lewis uses it. Yeah. And it's more of like a, a nod to his friends of like, you know, yeah, I, I like you guys and what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder what those conversations were like, because, of course, Lewis writes the preface. Um, and I'm not quite sure. I'm sorry for a chronology guy. I failed at finding out kind of the chronology of this. Um, but he writes the preface on Christmas Eve of 43. So um, I think that he writes that hideous strength kind of uh, several years before it comes up. And, you know, Williams is shortly there on the scene. Yeah, I think Logers comes with Williams, but I think they're all really dedicated to Arthur. Um, that's something they can all agree on. And of course, Tolkien's slotting in this mythology from England that starts at the end of Troy and ends at the beginning of Arthur, right? And you can see this kind of parallel with Aragorn and Arthur. So the Age of Men starts kind of with the Arthurian. And of course, we've got Tolkien's, Tolkien's version of the fall of Arthur. So I think that that idea of what the true England is um, and that's a lot of some of the spirituality that's going on in England in the first half of the century, especially with the dominance of kind of atheist scientism and stuff. Um, those magic workers are trying to access some of that stuff. And I'm glad that Lewis got to Merlin before, say, Williams did or uh, or anyone else. And since you mentioned uh, Numenor and the roots of that word with Numen, Nod, um that just makes me think in Lewis's opening to English literature in the 16th century, he's talking about that interplay between magic and science and the Renaissance magicians and what they're uh, trying to, to do. And he uses the phrase mundana numina. Is that, does that sound right to you? Mundana. What is it? Mundana numina. Mundana numina. Yeah. Yeah. So the mundane, um, the mundane nod, the mundane divine power, the the, the uh, kind of a worldly power. Yeah, and I think he's he uses that. So yeah, mundana numina, and so okay. yeah, the world, and then the numina is those uh -huh. um, spirits that I think he is identifying with as being the middle spirits or the neutrals, the ones that are not either yeah, angels or devils. Yeah. You know, and kind of these in intermediate intermediary um spirits that were that were going on and i thought it was a really kind of intriguing bottle to open yeah it definitely is all right so then uh with the riddles themselves are these three questions that that uh merlin has for ransom uh well before we get there yeah just 
This chapter is why I did a minor in Latin. Okay. Right? Star, said Ransom in a loud voice, in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti, dic mihi quisist et uh, quisis et quam obcausum veneris. And I just, I got so tired of looking up the tags, right? And to hear Lewis's recording, we were talking about the rabbit room has for three bucks. Uh, downloads of Lewis doing some readings from Chaucer and then from the Space Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy. Uh, best $3 I ever spend. Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, and and that interaction between them. And we're, uh, in Pints with Jack, we're doing um, Latin, or the Latin letters right now. And this idea that Latin used to be, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a language of the, you know, a, a, a lingua franca throughout Europe. And so to have this kind of medieval Latin is just great fun. So, yeah. And hearing Lewis do that reading of that part you just did is absolutely yeah. awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. But just one more thing. Um, interspersed throughout this are these, um, are these uh, parentheses. And I'm particularly sensitive to them because um, Lewis uses parenthetical remarks until we have faces for Orwell to actually give factual truths. She's very often prevaricating. She's deceiving. She's misleading. She's lying. But in the par in the parentheses, she's telling the truth. Um, there's also this kind of other thing because Lewis is explaining, but not fully translating the Latin. And I found myself wishing that I had world enough in time to pull out my old Latin dictionary and see if I could translate all of the Latin in there. Um, and so this idea that Lewis is thinking in a different language. And of course, you see that in Intilia Faces or while is writing in Greek. And I've always begged um, any listener to translate Tilia Faces into classical Greek. I think that there'd be a ton of insights. And then in the Ohel, he translates foreign language into Elizabethan English for fun. So if a, if a quote is in German, he translates it. And the Latin that they're speaking here is like that uh, early period Latin of Apuleius at some point in this chapter. I think that's where they bring that up yeah. because Merlin comes from the yeah, fifth absolutely. century. Yeah. So it's a particular uh, strain of Latin too. Yes. And then a dog could have Greek also in its bill. Um, and as the ruin falls, uh, Lewis says, I talk of love, a scholar's parrot may talk Greek. And that's a poem to Joy Davidman as she's dying. And then until we have faces, he says, um, I parroted, she says, I parroted the Greek that my master of the fox taught me well. And so this idea of a bird having a foreign language, having Greek in its, in its, in its mouth is an idea that kind of pops up again and again. Interesting. But yeah, I love the kind of back and forth them. and the riddles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So with those questions, there's three questions. And the first one that Merlin asks him, he says, who is called Solva? What road does she walk? Why is the womb barren on one side? Where are the cold marriages? Ransom replied, Solva is she who mortals call the moon. She walks in the lowest sphere. The rim of the world that was wasted goes through her. Half of her orb is turned towards us and shares our curse. Her other half looks to deep heaven. Happy would he be who could cross that frontier and see the fields on her further side. On this side... Mm. The womb is barren and the marriage is cold. There dwell an accursed people full of pride and lust. There, when a man makes, or when a man takes a maiden in marriage, they do not lie together, but each lies with a cunningly fashioned image of the other, made to move and to be warm by devilish arts. 
for real flesh will not please them. They are so dainty, delicati, there's one of your parentheses, in their dreams yeah. of lust. They're real children they fabricate by vile arts in a secret place. A lot going on right there. Solva yeah. is is the moon. Uh, that's the, mm-hmm. the name in the, the medieval cosmos. And in an earlier chapter, we had Philostrato talking about what's going on on the moon. And there's this race of people and, you know, they're very, uh, like technocratic. Like he wants to, to make the, uh, the earth, uh, they've gotten rid of all organic life. And of course the, the moon mm-hmm. is two faced in, in the sense of, you know, the one side stays towards us the whole time and the other side yeah. is away. So those are kind of like the, the immediate back backdrop context, things that, uh, maybe are helpful to have in mind when, you know, looking at this. And passage. I love the fact that, that we call it the dark side of the moon. But but from Merlin's perspective, that's the light side because it's looking out onto deep heaven. It's not not looking down on Thulchandra, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I love that. So do you have any, uh, I guess, take on what, what this is about with the moon? Is that does that come from a particular story from uh, the medievals or something? Because I don't know about it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm afraid I'm way out of my depth here. Um, I'm not really sure, but this kind of idea. And because we didn't know whether or not the moon was populated. So, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, while we're chatting here, I'm going to pull up my uh, my good friend, Aaron Smildy. I wish you were a better friend. I've only met him in person once. But uh, you know the Louisiana website, yep. site, right? Does he have notes about that hideous strength? He does. And oh, I does he have any help about this? I believe I already looked. Uh Okay. Let me, we should double check for sure in case I missed it. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, I know that he was huge um, with um, oh H.G. Uh, Wells, and I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what Lewis is getting at here. Now, what do you make of that? Well, uh, in a later part of this chapter, we'll uh-huh. we'll deal with this same kind of topic again with the uh like infertility aspect of humanity on earth where uh-huh. uh as i take it lewis is kind of taking a jab at even birth control a little later on um, which would make sense for him so I, I i don't know if there's actually any sort of you know story that he's drawing this from from the medievals or or previous uh but that's that's the best that i can tell that they're using that um that vision of the moon as being half fallen and half mm-hmm. pure, right? And then creating the story about what the fallen side looks like, and then he's mm-hmm. he's essentially saying that this that fallen side uh, that is on the moon that is what is now coming to Earth, because that's what like mm-hmm. Philostrato is very explicitly trying to bring about on Earth. Sure, sure, yeah, they're. They're trying to be imitative, you know, and all of the only thing the enemy can do is pervert the true that we have. Right. And so you've got some of that happening at happening in the nice. The only other thing that kind of strikes me is this kind of faux marriage between the lady of the green kirtle and and Rillian. Right. So he's her consort, but um, it's barren and cold and it's and it's twisted up in an enchantment. Because the silver chair is the um, is the the Narnia about Solva, right? Is about the moon. Yeah. So I'm just trying to go. Hey, I wonder if there's a little of that in here. 
Yeah, they're, they're real children. They fabricate by vile arts in a secret place, but they're taking images of each other, not their, not their true selves, you know? And so, and the, the, of course, the modernist idolatry is to create man after man or God after man's own image. And that's some of what you see with the nice. So I think that there's a bit of that here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. And then the second question, and we'll yeah. see, we'll see if we get anywhere with this one. All right. So Merlin responds after the first one. He says, you have answered well, said the stranger. I thought there were but three men in the world that knew this question. But my second, and I want to know who those three were. So do right? I. Merlin was one. And who were the other two? Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I would guess maybe Arthur, but maybe. I don't. Well, maybe we'll see here in a sec. So, all right. So there was, uh, what is it? Three men in the world, right? Okay. Three men in the world that knew the, knew this question. Yeah. Uh, but my second may be harder. Where is the ring of Arthur the King? What Lord has such a treasure in his house? The King. And then he says, uh, the ring of the King said ransom is on Arthur's finger where he sits in the house of Kings in the cup shaped land of Abhalan beyond the seas of Lure and Paralandra for Arthur did not die, but our Lord took him to be in the body till the end of time and the shattering of Solva with Enoch and Elias and Moses and Melchizedek, the King Melchizedek is he whose hall, the steep stone ring sparkles on the forefinger of the pen dragon. Mm. All right. Yeah. Any insight into what's going on with this riddle? Well, so um, there's Al, Al, Ab, Abhaljan, according to, um, uh, to Arend, is an old invented form of the word Avalon. And that's where Arthur goes when he dies. Like he goes off and he's one of those who does not die. And so he's lumping in Arthur with uh, Enoch and Elijah, um, uh, because those two were not taken. And then Melchizedek is, um, is, is without birth or death, according to Hebrews, right? So Melchizedek doesn't necessarily have an end. And then maybe the association of Elijah and Moses appearing in Revelation. So you have these mortals who have been taken and not experienced death. And so Arthur, I think, is among them. And, um, and he places them in Paralandra and, yeah, I don't know what the relationship is between him as Pendragon and Arthur as Pendragon. And of course, you know, Ransom wants to go back to Paralandra, kind of like Frodo wants to go back to, um, and goes to the other west, right? Goes to Valinor. And Paralandra so, is mm -hmm. uh, essentially the, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of like the heaven in this storyline. Because it mm -hmm. is unfallen in the second novel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Avalon is, I think, roughly equivalent to that. And but the 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 thought is that not only is Merlin going to return, but Arthur's going to return. Right. And so I don't know what their relation uh is between the two of them is, but um but you certainly see this kind of Arthurian figure, I think, some in ransom. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the final question that Merlin asks him, he says, well answered, said the stranger. In my college, it was thought that only two men in the world knew this. So we're narrowing down. Yeah, so maybe now Gandalf, it's two. Gandalf and Merlin, Dumbledore and Merlin. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but we went from three people. No, to now two people. No. 
uh, with that second question. And then the final one is only one. Uh, so two men in the world knew it. Uh, but as for my third question, no man knew the answer but myself. Who shall be Pendragon in the time when Saturn descends from his sphere? In what world did he learn war? In the sphere of Venus, I learned war, said Ransom. In this age, Lurga, which is Saturn, shall descend. I am the Pendragon. Any yeah. any thoughts as to why uh, Lurga, Saturn, why that's the one that's picked out here as the one to descend? Sure, yeah. I mean, Saturn is the end. Saturn's Kronos, right? And so you see a different picture of Lurga at the end of um, of the last battle. We just did Darnia Month with Kristen. And Kronos wakes up again. Kronos, who we find during Silver Chair, wakes up again. And Kronos is the Greek name of Saturn, right? The father of Jupiter. And he, it's, you know, he's father time. And so father time comes in, in, at the end of Narnia and kind of sweeps away old Narnia. And so, um, Saturn is the, is kind of the one who closes all the doors and, Lewis is definitely thinking, you get this sense throughout these books that um, there's an apocalyptic sense. Like we are touching on forces and, and messing with, you know, with preternaturals and it's going to be our doom. And so I, I, I think Lewis wouldn't have been surprised to see the end of the world, or at least that's part of what he's projecting in the, uh, in the ransom books. And so he's picturing, okay, the gods are going to descend and Kronos and time's up. Right. And, and here it all comes to a head and it must've seemed that dire to him, I think. And so, so that's, that's about as close as I can get. What about you? Well, yeah, well, that's good. And that's really interesting because in the same chapter, uh, there is more dialogue that is exactly about the end times. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll hold that off, I guess, till we get to that section, but that makes a heck of a lot of sense then to have, Kronos be, you know, the, the end time, uh, just mm -hmm. perfectly fits. Yeah. You know about the legend too, of the Fisher King, right? Yeah. Um, I mostly think though of the Fisher King as the King whose condition matches that of his kingdom. And so, so I think about the conversation later on in the chapter where Merlin you know, offers to heal the heel you know, Ransom's, Ransom's wound. And as the Fisher King, he doesn't want it healed. And part of it is that the, the wound, that the, that the world is wounded and won't be, won't be healed until Christ comes, I think. And so, so that's about as far as I, I can go with that. Oh, well, that's good. Lewis first comes to Arthur through Morris, through William Morris. And then he starts reading Arthur on his own. And you can see those in the letters to Arthur Greaves. You know, and he discovers some of the original stuff. I think the kind of the takeaway for me is that while Lewis certainly is an apologist, I think that he serves as an evangelist in these matters, but an evangelist for good reading. I think he really trusts the reading process, right? The, uh, the spiritual strike against Eustace is that he hasn't read the right sort of books. The trouble about reading Lewis is, I mean, try reading Surprised by Joy and just jotting down the name of every author or story that he mentions, and you'll run out of ink and your hand will cramp, you know. But Lewis trusted that reading was a way to finding accurate truth. And when you circle back to experiment and criticism and I must see with other eyes and I gladly would I read invented worlds, even even stories about this world are not enough, um, 
the idea that reading can help clarify our vision. You know, and my big kind of field theory of Lewis is that he's always talking about love. And the means to get to love is clarity or seeing well. Lux, Lucas, Lucy, all of that stuff. Um, and the method that he uses is reading, right, is mythos. So mythos is a way to clarify, mythos meaning mostly story. Story helps clarify our sight, helps us to see better. And one of the things that we see better and the th most important thing is, is the God of love. So I've been having some interesting back and forth with a guy called Dave Terpstra in, uh, in Africa who's doing a doctorate, um, with Steve Beatty uh, on Lewis. And he's been fascinated about Aslan's eyes and the gaze of Aslan, right? And so, so part of all of this with the Arthurian stuff is he wants us to read more. And Lewis read in order to get away from faith. But the reading led him ineluctably, unavoidably to faith. And that reading process is a clarifying one. If it's done right, if it's received, like Lewis says in Experiment of Criticism, not used, right? Or if you read along the myths instead of just looking at them, which is what, you know, what uh, Joseph Campbell and, and Sir James Fraser are, are doing. They're kind of looking at myth. But Lewis and Tolkien are saying, wait a minute, there aren't enough of the stories that we like. We need to read a long myth. And this is a period in which narrative story itself is being held at arm's distance and really, um, really mistrusted. Um, and Lewis and Tolkien are saying, wait a minute, story can be trusted. I got to grab a poem real quick, but yeah, yeah. I want to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, go ahead. I think you're spot on. I, I think there, um, Lewis says this and, uh, sometimes fairy stories may say best what's to be said that oh walter what a terrible title <laughs> you can do uh, more things with fiction than you can with nonfiction. you can sneak past the watchful dragons and yeah. i think that's absolutely right uh, actually aristotle says the same type of thing that uh, in his poetics that you have a broader reach and more influence with what would be, you know, broadly what we would call fiction today. So I, I think that's absolutely true. It captures, and I mean, it captures the imagination, you know, rather than just say the intellect. Right. No, absolutely. And he's trying to, he's trying to integrate that whole man. And in some ways, the only way that that integration happens with him is by means of Joy Davidman's poetry. She kind of calls him out for being the great Antarctica, the newfound land of woman killing frost. And by means of poetry, she gets into him and kind of unlaces him and helps him to be embodied um, in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that the power of language is incredibly important. So here's readjustment, which um, which Don tentatively, Don W. King, um, upon whom be all favor and grace, uh, in the the collected poems of C.S. Lewis, um, he tentatively dates in 1963. And the poem's called Readjustment. Oh, my gosh. I thought there would be a grave beauty, a sunset splendor in being the last of one's kind, a topmost moment as one watched the huge wave curving over Atlantis, the shrouded barge turning away with wounded Arthur or Ilium burning. Now I see that all along 
I was assuming a posterity of gentle hearts. Someone, however distant in the depths of time, could pick up our signal, who could understand a story. There won't be. Between the new hominidae, these are apes, between the new hominidae and us who are dying, who are dying, already there rises a barrier across which no voice can ever carry, for devils are unmaking language. We must let that alone forever. Uproot your loves one by one with care from the future and trusting to no future receive the massive thrust and surge of the many-dimensional timeless rays converging on this small, significant dewdrop, the present that mirrors all. It's so despairing, right? The huge wave curving over Atlantis, the shrouded barge turning away, here's our wounded Arthur, or Ilium burning, right? The, the burning of Troy, which is how, you know, uh, what we find at the end of the, of the Iliad. Um, I was assuming a posterity of gentle hearts, someone, however distant in t- the depths of time, who could pick up our signal, who could understand a story. Jack, you were wrong. There shall be. Here we are. Right. And I think that some of what Lewis and Tolkien are doing is tossing out this idea of readjustment that we need to adjust to living in this present moment. And he's, I think, a little bit despairing in part because of the kind of modernist, postmodernist stuff that's going on in literature. And um, but but that they they while they maybe have won the battle, they they're losing the war. And uh, and that's part of why we're doing what we're doing. Right. Well, and that poem mentioned the devilish corruption of language. And yes, how fitting, devils are unmaking language. <laughs> yeah, and how fitting is that for uh, this book and the then nice. for even more for our own day-to-day where it seems like the problem has just extrapolated. Uh, I mean, even in this next section of Chapter 13, the very next okay. section, we have Wither and Frost talking to each other and we go from the first section where we have two masters of languages that they mentioned Hebrew, right. Latin, Greek, uh, you know, ancient Latin uh, or Yerser language, whatever that is, you know, all the, the no, solar language. Solar. Yeah. The yeah. old solar. <laughs> so they mentioned all these languages and they know them all. And, you know, and then we go from that and then right to the next chapter, it opens with this throws or not next chapter, but next section of this chapter. This throws a quite unexpected burden on our resources, said Wither to Frost, where they both sat in the outer room with the door ajar. I must confess, I had not anticipated any serious difficulty about language. And this is totally ironic because they're there. Well, when we just saw the, the opening of this chapter, but throughout the whole thing, uh, Wither has been somebody who just abuses language nonstop. And he, he has yeah. these passages yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's like, what the heck did he just say? You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, I didn't expect any difficulty about language. Like their whole difficulty is language. Yeah. Well, and then how does it describe when they're, when, when Ransom and, and I know we're getting there, when Ransom and Merlin are robed, they, they say they're like two drops of Quicksilver, but Quicksilver is mercury and mercury is Hermes and Hermes is the inventor of language. Yeah. Right. 
In fact, I think that that's some of what Lewis is getting at in until we have faces because Maya is the grandmother of Hermes, right? And so there's this motherhood or this kind of creative source of language that's going on until we have faces. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, we know that, you know, the Belberry turns into Babel, yeah. you know, not long after that. And I and let's get there, but I can't pass over slowly, ponderously, yet not awkwardly, as though a mountain sank like a wave, Merlin sank on one knee. And so when Ransom answers his questions, this whole old system submits to this Christ-like individual who himself is a master of language, but also a warrior, right? And and those battles that he has on Venus that make him a warrior seem like those screw tape battles, right? In this moment, I have to, do I really have to sock the guy? Yes, I do. You know, and in Venus, I learned war. And so here he is, a master of language and of war, of story and of strength. Oh, yeah. And, and even Merlin has to bow to it. Just one of the, my favorite scenes in all of literature. Oh, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, and as these guys start talking, look at how, um, uh, so, so it's just, obfuscation the obscurant obscurantist language that they use they're not speaking clearly at all we are regretfully weak on the philological side i do not at the moment know how uh, uh, know who has discovered most of it he they they're not speaking directly right and ransom and merlin certainly are yeah yeah and that that line you started there that's that's one of the lines i highlighted we are regrettably weak on the philological side <laughs> you know yeah. which is is perfect for describing what the nice is but also it's a response to modernism that doesn't trust language anymore so you've got frederick saussure you know in 1922 which is the annus mirabilis of modernism and you have him noticing the slippage between language right and so I can say table, or I can say maison, or I can say mesa, and I have three signifiers for one signified. And so there's a gap, and we begin not to be able to trust language, which is why Joyce is doing what Joyce is doing, and why Eliot's doing what he's doing. You know, Eliot's deceiving us in some of his poetry, because we can't trust anything. The war, World War I, really taught us the instability of everything and the slippage of everything between meaning and the thing itself. Um, and the kind of one of the cries of modernism is no images, but in things. And so they just wanted the actual thing. You can see that kind of scientistic, you know, push to just get the real thing. And that's why science, scientism, as it's especially portrayed in the nice is going on. But Lewis and Tolkien are saying you can trust language, right? And one of the most beautiful passages in the Lord of the Rings is when Sam starts blurting out the Elvish that he doesn't even understand, right? He's speaking in tongues, oh, Elbereth Gilthonia. And Tolkien doesn't provide the translation. He expects that us as readers will be blessed and helped just by the sound of the language that we don't understand. It's great to have the translation, but Tolkien, by not providing it, is saying language is trustworthy and he's inventing languages. And so while the devils are trying to unmake language, which is what's happening in linguistics and um, semiotics and all the rest. And, you know, the, uh, you know, I appreciate the work that the deconstructionists are doing, but there's something else really going on. And Lewis and Tolkien are arguing that you can trust the word, right? 
And, um, it, you know, it's, and he's, he's adding this kind of theological importance to language. So, um, when in Magician's Nephew, which is the last book written, Aston says Narnia, 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 he in, makes the threefold invocation like Jill and Eustace to make the Trinitarian, oh, Aslan, 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 right? That the language and the naming is important. And the first thing that he tells Narnia to do is awake. And then the next thing he says is love. That's Lewis's message to us. In, in the name of the Trinitarian God, wake up and love one another. And that's the failure that we have. We're about to be bombarded with fake news and flyers in our mailbox and all the nonsense that's going to go on in political campaigns. And the mistrust that they are building into, weaving into the system, tells us that we can't trust language, which is part of why I'm a priest. That's part of why I believe in a liturgical expression, because those ancient words of the creed, of the Eucharistic prayers, those are powerful and important. And Lewis and Tolkien are where I was inspired to say you can still trust language, even though the modernist and the postmodernist world say you can't. And that's the fight, as you point out so clearly, you know, that's happening right there at Belbury. Sorry to go well, on. For so oh, no, there's so much to that. Uh, ah, that was great. You know, you point out that language is theological the way Lewis is describing here. And that's absolutely right. You know, go back to even just logos itself. Like there's a reason right. that that is such an important word and such an important word throughout Western history. Uh, yeah. It, it, you can't, you can't separate the idea of the theological from the importance of language. And Lewis has a, a great line. This is one of my favorite lines of all of his essays. It comes from equality. And I think it's the closing line of it. And he says, men do not long continue to think what they have forgotten how to say. And it's, it's exactly that point that you're, you're making. If, if we abuse language, if we, you know, uh, strip, you think of Orwell in 1984, we try to, you know, strip words out, change their meanings, all that stuff. Uh, then we cease to think anymore because we forgot how to say these things. And, uh, man, there's so much to that. Yeah. There's a ton going on here. Oh, and actually another thing that just came to my mind. I mean, Lewis, he picks out the linguistic analysts as a key, um, like, a key piece in the line of totalitarianism. So like in his essay, uh, is progress possible? He, he picks out say, uh, Hegel and Marx, he picks them out. And then he also includes the linguistic analyst, you know, like where'd they come from? Like, Oh no, he sees them as being a key piece or in la later in this book, uh, when he's talking about wither and he says that wither passed through Hume and Hegel and then the pragmatist. And then he says, and then, Ultimately, in the end, he goes through either the linguistic analyst or the logical positives. I don't remember which one he used, but in both cases, they're talking about people that are fudging with the language. So, I mean, he was yes. so uh, perspective on language is vital because we are beings that have reason. We have logos. If you just use the Greek, you know, that is a key thing mm -hmm. that makes us distinct from the rest of the animals. So. To to abuse that is to abuse part of what it is to be made in God's image. I mean, it's it is incredibly rich and incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. And it truly yeah. is. I mean, I think it truly is. It's a devilish deception to corrupt language. I, that that would be like the ultimate thing to attack. 
Sure. I mean, you, sure. If we, if we can't That's communicate. That's part of why Lewis does studies and words at the end. Yeah. Right? He's investing in so much of this. And then Orwall, I mean, she calls attention to the last two words in book one. No answer. Right? You know, um, not many days have passed since I wrote the words no answer. Two or three times she references no answer. And so that it, that spurred me to look at the first two words of book one. And the first two words of book one are I am. Right? She says, I am old now and have not much. But all of book one summed up is I am no answer. Right? She realizes that she doesn't have within herself. And until that word can be dug out of us, how, why should the gods pay attention to the babble that we think, to the things we say that we think we mean? Right? So the true meaning, the true answer is lying within us and the gods have to pry it out of us. Just like Aslan had to pry the real Eustace out of the dragon skin, right? And Orwall, too, had to kind of dig down. And the three times she digs down in the pillar room, at last, her father holds her face up to the mirror. And he says, who are you, child? And she wails. She says, I am Ungit. But what she's saying is, I am love, is literally what she's saying. And she thinks that that word means you know, that word doesn't mean what you think it means, right? It's, it's all in Princess Bride. What are they teaching in the schools these days? We should, so, we should be watching more so Princess she, Bride. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's all right here. And you can see all this kind of nascent stuff in Lewis's, what, third real book of fiction? Before we get to a uh, part that I want to mention in chapter mm -hmm. th or in the third section here. Section three. Yeah. Is there anything else? The, the part, I should say, is... Uh, well, it's the part you mentioned with Quicksilver, and mm -hmm. um, and it's helpful because it explains what is a bizarre cover for the Scribner copy. I mean, most of them are bizarre covers, but people are like, "What the heck is going on?" And this is the section where we actually, yeah, where we actually find out <laughs> what is going on on the cover. Uh, so I wanted yeah. to yeah. to read that. But uh, anything before that that you want to touch on here? Um, There's so much, you know, you know, I have to be choosy. Well, oh, as to being committed, said Wither, in some sense, ignoring certain fine shades for the moment while fully recognizing their ultimate importance, I should not hesitate. We should be perfectly justified. Right? And it's the same thing. The one saving, one of the few saving graces about Mark Stedek is he's trying to get a straight answer and he can't. Right? Um, and that even that desire to get a straight answer, and that's why they put him in the room where nothing is straight, nothing is truly perpendicular, right? Um, yeah, it's um, it's just masterful how Lewis switches his tone um, and writes these so well. Yeah, if you if you go through everything Wither says in the book and just like copy and pasted it and did like you know line after line or just straight Wither quotes. You could read it and come out and go and like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about most of the time. And yeah. of course, that's yeah. that's intentional. He is Wither is the most uh, corrupted in terms of his language in the story. And I think that's, you know, pretty intentional with Lewis's even naming him Wither. You know, and I wonder if not only Wither, meaning withering away, but Divine has this kind of letter change. It's D-E-V-I-N-E. Um, I wonder if what uh, if part of Wither is W H I T H R to wear, right? And Lewis says we're progressives, but we're not asking where we're progressing to. 
So progress is progratus, right? Progressus. Pro means forward, gressus means step. And we don't know where they're stepping to. And this is something that Lewis just just pillories in some of the poetry, you know, evolutionary hymn and, and all the rest. Um, you know, we must progress, but nobody's asking where are we progressing to? And Wither doesn't understand whither he is going. It means literally to where. And he doesn't know to where. He doesn't have enough inside of him to understand to where. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Uh, Lewis has a section. Uh, I don't remember what chapter it was. I don't think it's this chapter, though, but where he's describing Wither as being like a wraith who lost the intellectual good. And I think that fits in exactly with what you're talking about. He is progressing, but he's progressing in a direction that is not actually in accord with natural law with the objective values, yeah. you know, he is progressing yeah. in a, a different way and that causes him to essentially become a shell of a person, a, a wraith like thing. Lead us evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair, chop us, change us, prod us, weed us for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us. Nobody knows where. So yeah, the evolutionary hymn, is um is set to joyful joyful yeah i like to say it like like this uh i'm curious what you make of this i say that lewis was a progressive but lowercase p progressive he was not a capital case p you know progressive right because he saw as progress you can make progress within the dow and so you know he said that oh you have the confucian do not okay that's added to we actually make progress yep. with the christian do you know, so there's a, a real genuine yes. progress, but anything that tries yeah. to step out of the Tao, which is what actual modern capital P progressivism is, then it's it ceases to be actual progress uh, because it, you've, yeah. you know, erased um, the Tao. Yeah, and yeah, then, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why The Four Loves is such an important book. I mean, he kind of co-writes it with joy. Uh, it is the prose version of the fiction till we have faces. Um, and... Uh, he's looking at the important, and he says the shortest, the longest way round is the shortest way home, right? And it's this sort of thing. We have to kind of do that work. And, uh, and yeah, and, and then in, even in defining those words, and he also says that the challenge for the, the people are more likely to praise and dispraise than to define and describe. And the trust of language to describe things well is one of the things that, that modernists, I think, despair of, but Lewis and Tolkien are trying to reanimate. Yeah, well, and even the word progress itself. I mean, what a master move to label yourself as being, you know, for progress, progressive, because that's a good thing, yeah. right? But then in reality, if that is something that's trying to step outside the Tao, well, that's not progress yeah. at all, but you can win the language battle. I mean, what a devilish, you know, master move of yes. deception. Yes, well, and remember the Scrutapian kind of the Scrutapian <clears throat> definition that um, progress means going backwards if you find that you've gone away from the from the from the true way. He talk, touches on that in Mere Christianity as well. Progress means going backwards mm -hmm. if we're going wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's all it all it depends on a set referent point, which would be you know from God's nature. If you if you yeah. if you remove that, then you you're just floating in the void, as as Lewis likes to put it. Right. And that's perfect. Yeah, there it's just a void. Yeah. We have nothing yeah. from which we can be tethered to. We're in the void. Yeah. 
Oh man, we could spend hours on this, but I do want to. I do want to see what you have to say yeah. about the other sections. All right. So in section three, the part I want to uh, read here mm-hmm. is where um, you have the two guys robed in their different garments. Uh, the paragraph begins with, so it's on uh, two seventy-five near the top. Yeah. Looking down on them from the balustrade were two men, one clothed in sweepy garments of red, and the other in blue. It was the director who wore blue. And for one instant, a thought that was pure nightmare crossed Jane's mind. So just to stop there for a sec, people wonder, what on earth is this weird cover, uh, the Scribner copy cover of That Hideous Strength? Well, Uh that's what it is right there. Merlin is the guy in red standing there. Yep, and Ransom is the guy in blue. Imperial Guard. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So they are standing there talking to each other, and for some reason... It's being pictured that they're over the moon. Uh, well, I guess we'll kind of see why that is. We've already discussed the moon a bit, and then the moon comes up again in a later section. So mm-hmm. I guess there is a, a real reason for it. But that's who those characters are. It's Merlin and Ransom. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, the two robed figures looked to be two of the same sort. And what, after all, did she know of this director who had conjured her into his house and made her dream dreams and taught her the fear of hell that very night. And there they were, the pair of them, talking their secrets and doing whatever such people would do when they had emptied the house or laid its inhabitants to sleep. The man who had been dug up out of the earth, and the man who had been in outer space. And, uh, oh, well, I better hit this part, because it's the Quicksilver. And the one had told them that the other was an enemy. And now, the moment they met, here were the two of them run together like two drops of quicksilver. So there's that quicksilver that you mentioned referring to the importance of language and mercury. So yeah, uh, mostly I wanted to read this so people could understand (laughs) what this weird cover is. Uh, And then that quicksilver point is, is so applicable to everything we've been talking about with the importance of language as well. Yeah. And I love how ransom kind of sticks up for Jane. Right. Merlin says, well, yeah. sir, you have the, you, in your house the falsest lady of any this time alive. And he wants to like behead her. Yeah. And sir, you're mistaken, you know. And so, yeah, they have kind of some, you know, some some disagreement about what's going on there. Right. Um, there's that passage here where we connect back to Solva. Uh, so, sir, mm-hmm. said Merlin, be assured that the child will never be born for the hour of its beginning is past. Of their own will, they are barren. I did not know till now that the usages of Solva were so common among you. Uh, For a hundred generations, in two lines, the beginning of this child was prepared, and unless God should rip up the work of time, such seed, and such an hour, and such a land, shall never be again. So, that's the connection then to to Solva once again, and what's happening yeah. with the creepiness on the moon. And I'm not sure if I'm completely down with Merlin. I'm like, give them a chance. I mean, then they <laughs> go off to be together at the end and the seed is prepared and the land is prepared, you know, and can't God, you know, change the hour. And yes, God could rip up the work of time. Um, so sometimes Merlin seems a little narrow. <laughs> well, yeah. And his, they mentioned at some point that his uh, justice system is different from his, you know, his fifth century. Uh, and of course, as this uh, this chapter goes on, we see that he has a lot of different things naturally coming from the fifth century than what is going on in the present. And not mm-hmm. all of the things from the ancient are portrayed as being 
um, better than what is going on in the present. So Lewis has nuance. And then you see, yeah, and you start to see Dimble playing this really moderating influence. So we start to see Dimble reporting what's going on and translating. And then Dimble also has this long, and uh, I don't know that they have children. Um, I don't know that they don't, but they seem to have a long and happy marriage. And so here's here's Dimble, a professor of language and story and literature, you know, who is is, is kind of playing this moderating role. So mm-hmm. I find it kind of help uh, hopeful to to have him there. Yeah, yeah, and he there's this line here uh, in the same page two seventy six where. It says, but Dimble had followed it, followed the conversation with this older type of Latin. And I can't help but thinking like, oh, that's Lewis uh, thinking of himself a bit, uh, comparing himself to Dimble. Because, you know, he mentioned Apuleius and Martianus, Capella and guys that Lewis knew and references. And I'm like, oh, I I know you're uh, pretty much referring to yourself there, Lewis. And I I enjoy it. Yeah. um, Let's see. Is it Capella? Uh, no, I don't want to say this wrong. Um, what is Martianus Capella? Right. Latin prose writer. Uh, one of the developers of the system of the uh, of the seven liberal arts. Okay. Um, oh, and on the marriage of uh, philosophy and Mercury. There you Very go. Nice. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, never directly identifies his religious affiliation. So, and yeah. so in discarded image, uh, he comes up a couple times. Here's one of the the lines that Lewis uses uh, referencing him. He says, "In Martianus Capella's De Nuptius, he is the bridegroom mm-hmm. of philologia, who is learning, or even literature rather than what we call philology. So that there's more okay. uh, talk about language." Yep. Uh, the other, another reference I take for them, the name Longeve from Martianus Capella. So, okay. The long guy we, yeah. Oh, is that how I've heard so many different Uh, pronunciations? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Let's see. I did classical. And so I think that would be long and in medieval would be long Okay. Um, uh, the long livers, the long aged ones and, I just, I got that from discarded image, you know, it's, this is not me being smart. Yeah. I, I just didn't know how to pronounce it. Long, long guy. I like the long guy. We am going with that. Long guy. We is as, as how I always got it. All right. And I don't know oh, what to make oh. of McPhee. Um, I, you know, I mean the knock, I mean, Kirkpatrick was Scottish. McPhee is clearly an Ulsterman. Yeah. You know? And so I, I want to resist the urge to try and say, Oh, he must represent, um, so I think there's a little of Kirkpatrick in him. I, I think so too. I think he's definitely kind of molded from Lewis's experience with Kirkpatrick. But but you're right. Mm-hmm. He he is not a, a Scottish guy necessarily, but he is still very much kind of like a, a Humean in his philosophical mm-hmm. outlook. So I, I yeah, I do see a lot of similarities with Kirkpatrick. And and Ransom trusts him as much as he trusts Merlin. Yeah. So that's a that's a vote for the for the rational side, I think. Oh, for sure, and I think um, Lewis is using McPhee too to point out that McPhee, though he is a materialist, 
he describes him as being one of those older uh, 19th century materialists or in the in the line of those guys who is dogmatic about there being such a thing as objective truth. He says that yeah. the what happens with the nice is that they have despaired of objective truth, which has led to then this poison of subjectivism, which is mm-hmm. the great deceit nice. of the devils. And so the key thing, yeah. I think, with McPhee is he's saying, hey, look, I disagree ultimately with McPhee's grounding for his objective you know, truth and goodness and beauty, because he says, well, you know, you don't have any grounding for it. You know, you don't have the ontological grounding for it in God. And Lewis pokes fun at that multiple places in that hideous strength. But yet he wants to accept McPhee as saying, well, he's not an enemy because he hasn't fallen prey to the poison of subjectivism. When you fall prey to that, then there can be no room for, um, debate or deliberation or discussion about these big questions of life. McPhee hasn't, hasn't gone to that intolerant type of position yet. Yeah. It's on his way somewhere good. Yeah. So I, I I really appreciate McPhee being here because I think Lewis is, is really being careful to say, no, I, I'm not uh, trying to necessarily pillory a objective materialism, only the type that leads to subjectivism. That is the the thing that then, you know, the the waterfall goes from there. Now, Joseph wisely observed, I think, and, and it shows that that's a step, right? I mean, I think that, that, um, that the knock was an, an indelible, uh, you know, essential step in Lewis's development towards faith. Right. Oh yeah. I think so. All right, let me know if there's anything else. I mean, like we're saying, there's so much here that, you know, we could be doing this yeah. for <laughs> for the whole night. Uh, but I do really want yeah, to get to... Yeah, I love how he pitches them to get to each other. It would be hard, said the director, to explain to you my reasons for trusting Merlinus Ambrosius, but no harder than to explain to him why, despite many appearances which he which might be misunderstood, I trust you. That's great. Yeah, McPhee might be... Uh, hey man, he's close. I don't know if he's my favorite character, but he might be my favorite character in the story. Just because one, he's kind yeah. of funny. Like the way Lewis, you know, has him interact yeah. is a lot of funny moments. Uh, he has a foppishness in the physical description that that makes me think of um, of the uncle of Uncle Andrew. Okay, yeah. Um, but I think that they're different, in the real different sides of things. Yeah, yeah. So let's press on to section four, that kind of interlude with Dimble. Okay, yeah. So this. So mm-hmm. we have Dimble talking with his wife, and uh, I'll start near the bottom of 281, and this will be something where we have frequent stops, I'm sure. But before you do, time is more important than we thought, that's all. So he's really kind of taking uh, taking chronological snobbery to task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, carry on. Yeah. All right. Yes, she said. Spirit and matter, certainly. That explains why people like the Stutics find it so difficult to be happily married. The Stutics? said Dimble, looking at her rather vaguely. The domestic problems of that young couple had occupied his mind a good deal less than they had occupied his wife's. Oh, I see. Yes, I dare say that has something to do with it. And now now he changes the subject and we get on to, to Merlin. But about Merlin... Yeah. What it comes to, as far as I can make out, is this. There were still possibilities for a man of that age, which there aren't for a man of ours. The earth itself was more like an animal in those days, and mental processes 
were much more like physical actions, and there were, well, neutrals knocking about. Neutrals? I don't mean, of course, that anything can be a real neutral. A conscious being is either obeying God or disobeying him. But there might be things neutral in relation to us. Yeah. You mean Eldils? Angels? Uh Uh-huh. Well, the word angel rather begs the question. Even the Oyersu aren't exactly angels in the same sense as our guardian angels are. Technically, they are intelligences. The point is that while it may be true at the end of the world to describe every Eldil either as an angel or a devil, and may even be true now, it was much less true in Merlin's time. There used to be things on this earth pursuing their own business, so to speak. They weren't ministering spirits sent to help fallen humanity. But neither were they enemies preying upon us. Even in St. Paul, one gets glimpses of a population that won't exactly fit into our two columns of angels and devils. And if you go back further, all the gods, elves, dwarves, water people, Fate, Langiwi, you and I know too much to think they are just illusions. All right, so I'm going to stop it there for now. And yeah. here, here are uh, a couple of my, my thoughts and questions, and we can bounce these ideas back and forth. Do you think that the, well, I, I suppose we'll lay the groundwork here, neutrals, uh, as we see then later, he uses all these other words to describe them, one of them being that the Longiwi. And so the idea here is that these are those beings that are neutral, as he says, in relation to us. And in the opening pages of uh, English literature in the 16th century, Lewis is making the case that the Renaissance magicians, they are trying to bring back the neutrals and use them now for their magical purposes, mm-hmm. which he equates to ultimately this quest for power. Um, mm. And, and uh, it, it proves, you know, futile doesn't actually produce the effects they, they want. Uh, but, but that is mm-hmm. what I take it is meant by the neutrals. Also another word for it that he uses in discard image is the, the daimon. That'd be the, the Greek. Yeah. yeah the, the Latin is the long. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then it seems to include all those other names of these different things that are within fairy. And he lists mm-hmm. some of those names here. Okay. So now in St. Paul, one gets glimpses of a population that won't exactly fit into our two columns of angels and devils. What do you think he's thinking about there? My initial thoughts are maybe Galatians three and four, where Paul mentions intermediary and elementary um, spirits. Also Colossians two, he uses elemental elementary spirits. Uh, that's, that's kind of my initial thoughts. Uh, but I don't know of anywhere where he actually says what this is, you know, directly talking about. Yeah. And I don't either. And, um, I think that we're kind of poking around in some of the discussions that the Inklings might've had. I wonder, too, if this idea of powers and principalities, you know, although they are probably structures and hierarchies of angels and Dante will do and the Catholics will do, you know, what they do with that. Yeah. So the principalities and powers, uh, just since you brought that up, that's another one that is a possibility. I, I think that that is less likely simply because. I don't think that they are neutral in relation to us the way Paul Uh uses it. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
but yeah. I'm I'm definitely no, not and dogmatic I had here. Up the, uh, the, 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 uh, those other two references that you have, so I want to hear what you have to say about it. I like what Dimble says that it, that the point is that they that while they may be true at the while it may be true that at the end of the world to describe every Eldil either as an angel or devil, and it may even be true now, it is much less true in Merlin's time, and so. Some of that too is it reminds me of Saint Paul in Philippians one six saying, "He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ." So if you look at my life right now, it doesn't look very much like a completed work in Christ. But if you look at it by the time He perfects me at the day of Christ, it will look much farther along that line. And so. I think that Lewis is kind of talking about and not understand, you know, I don't, I think it's an open question where we are in the timeline of history. Lewis famously says, I don't know if we're in act one of the great play or act five, right? But there is this thing where people are becoming more and more like according to their true nature. And that's certainly true of Christians. When he uses that language who, in that hideous yeah. strength of things coming to a point. Right. Yeah. And obviously that, right. that is something that, uh, is inescapably linked to um, time because he's describing yeah. Merlin's time, which is fifth century, uh, being yeah. a time where things were different than they are now. They they hadn't come to as much of a point in terms of he, the way it's described is you have to pick a side. Uh, I don't remember sure. if that's in this chapter sure. or if that's... Well, and I mean, you think about it, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't really get kind of firmly fully developed until the third, fourth, fifth centuries. Yeah. Right. And so we are understanding more and more what's going on. And in that kind of freedom of misunderstanding, there seem to be spaces for lots of different, lots of different things. I do want to say though, that um, I rather love Mrs. Dimble. Mrs. Dimble with the ease born of long practice of uh, born of long practice averted the danger ever present in her house of a merely literary turn being given to the conversation. And so she's bringing him out of his head and into his heart. And then she makes this comment about that, that I think Lucy would make. Spirit and matter, certainly. That explains why people like the statics find it so difficult to be happily married. It's Lucy who's always saying, hey, what about Edward? Or what about Edmund? You know, will something be done? Well, everything will be done. And she, yes, is happy to think about the higher ideas, but she also cares about loving people. And Mrs. Dimble loves her husband too much to let him just go into his head about these literary things. And she's trying to bring him back down to earth as he's talking about the heavenlies. And that's something that we know inevitably from Lewis, that heaven was in his head, but it was also in his practice as well. And if it hadn't translated into his practice, it would have been practically worthless. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I can't help but think of Lewis when I read this passage with Dimble, <laughs> where he, yeah. his wife, you know, is talking about the relationship between the studics and uh, what Dimble says. He said, oh, I see. Yes, I dare say that has something to do with it. You know, like it completely yeah. caught him off guard. He wasn't thinking about that at all, you know, and then he and then he goes right to the Merlin stuff. Uh, <laughs> so I, sure. I just, it makes me laugh. Yeah. And the long habit of them being married. And so what they're probably doing is modeling for each other or modeling what the aesthetics need to, you know, I hope the dimples are in the aesthetics life for quite a long time. 
because like Damaris in in um, Place the Lion, who's too involved in her dissertation, so too is Jane sometimes a little yeah. too stuck in her head and doesn't understand that the ideas are actually worked out, right? What does Chesterton say? Be careful if you summon the gods, they might actually show up. <laughs> yeah, any other thoughts on, on this whole thing of the the Eldils and uh, angels, devils, neutrals? Yeah, I think that... Um, Although the angels are not being sanctified like we are, um, I think that the universe is progressing towards a decision point. You certainly see that portrayed in the book of Revelation. Um, and everybody becomes more extreme. And, uh, you know, I hate to bring up till we have faces again. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Um, you see at the end of Narnia, the animals look at Aslan with fear and hatred or they look at him with love. And at the end of Till We Have Faces, written around the same time, um, she says, long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. And I firmly believe that what she writes, although she covers it with her head, is I might love you. And that love is opposed to hatred and fear. And at the end, we must all make a decision. And the decision is either between love or hatred and fear, or to put it in mere Christianity terms, charity or self, right? Chapter eight is the great sin of book three. Chapter nine is charity. We must choose between self or love. And I think that's the point that he's putting everybody to and sees the universe progressing that way as well. And for the listeners who don't know, Andrew's favorite book of Lewis's is Till We Have Faces. Actually, no. Well, yes and no. And yes <laughs> okay, and never no. mind. But Lewis calls it far and away my best book. And so yeah. I have been spending, you know, the last 20 years or so trying to justify why that was the case. And it's probably the work yeah. of his that you know best. Is that right? I, yeah, I know. I know it better than anybody else in the world. Okay. Um, and, and it helped me to see that Lewis's whole goal is not joy, but love. Right. And the surprise by joy. Lewis says that joy serves only as a pointer to something other and outer. And in the talks that become the four loves, he says, love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other. And so that helped me see that Lewis's goal is not joy. He's always wanting people to see love, <clears throat> which is part of why I point out the dimble, you know, the, the husband, wife, husbandly, wifely moment between the dimbles and the application to the loving relationship of aesthetics need. And then, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, you know, Joy, Joy Davidman and, and Lewis are enjoying this, you know, together. And so it's, it's a fulfillment of everything Lewis wrote is in Till We Have Faces. Um, and, and I think that that's where he's finally kind of working out all of what he really thinks. And, but it's not until Joy Davidman comes to him and really kind of helps him embody himself and he falls in love with her and writes with her. Um, that he really, that everything kind of clicks into place. And so if you read till we have faces through my understanding of it and then read backwards, I think everything in Lewis is kind of pointing towards, and that's why he called it far and away my best book. I don't think he was exaggerating. Yeah. But there are elements of it are, are everywhere. And this idea of them loving each other, you know, is certainly important. Right, one and more. Merlin is the reverse of Belberry. Well, with Merlin being the reverse of Belberry, there's a interesting point here that I uh, want to make, and that's uh, uh -huh. even though Merlin is described as being kind of like that good magician, uh, Lewis's uh -huh. nuanced here with with what he uh, thinks about Merlin 
to the paragraph about halfway through 282. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was rather so it, well, his wife, I guess. And she says, it all sounds rather horrible to me. Uh, talking about, you know, Merlin's time and yeah. what he was doing. And then, uh, Dr. Dimble says it was rather horrible. I mean, even in Merlin's time, he came at the extreme tail end of it, though. You could still use that sort of life, meaning the neutrals in the universe. Mm -hmm. Innocently, you couldn't do it safely. The things weren't bad mm -hmm. in themselves, but they were already bad for us. This, they sort of withered, there's that word again, they sort of withered uh, the man who dealt with them. Not on purpose. They couldn't help doing it. Merlinus is withered. He's quite pious and humble and all that, but something has been taken out of him. The quietness of his is just a little deadly, like the quiet of a gutted building. It's the result of having laid his mind open to something that broadens the environment just a bit too much. Like polygamy, uh, it wasn't wrong for Abraham, but one can't help feeling that even he lost something by it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's so rich. And I, uh, I think Lewis thinks that trying to dabble with the spiritual realm in this way, even if it's undertaken as a quote unquote, good magician, like Merlin, he still thinks that it is not something that we should be doing. Yeah. It's not, I think, dissimilar to the temptation of Gandalf and Galadriel to have the ring, right? I would intend to do good with it, but it would corrupt me. Yeah. Right. And, um, and maybe in an earlier age, they could have, you know, held on to it. I don't know. Um, and I, it's, it's this connected connection with earthiness. Um, I think that, that the, so Sam can give up that, that, temptation to the ring right sam doesn't need to be the gardener of the world he's satisfied with his little patch there in hobbiton um and so sam i think escapes what merlin doesn't in his connection with the earth you see bombadil escaping that as well right bombadil's really connected with the earth and he just plays the ring like a toy um that maybe was a different age um and Merlin is kind of at the beginning of the age of men. He's at the beginning of the fourth age and maybe not able to kind of dabble with those powers without being somehow um, decapacitated by it. I think of Bilbo too, with his experience. Uh, he gives up the ring and then is in Rivendell. And he has that line where he says he feels stretched like uh, butter yeah. scraped over too much bread. And that to right, me makes me think of right. the same idea of being withered. Like, even though he yeah. was trying to use the ring when he does use it, you know, mostly he's trying to use it for good. It still works on his soul in this way that feels like he's yeah. stretched over, you know, too much. Yeah. 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 Devils are in making language. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Magia is white magic. Goetia is uh, dark magic. Um, thanks to, uh, to, to Aaron Smilly for that. Yeah. Yeah. And those are terms that are, uh, frequent in English literature in the 16th century. And that, that opening part, uh, which yeah. I've mentioned it multiple times, but that like maybe first 15, 16 pages, whatever it is, is so relevant to mm -hmm. all these later chapters of that hideous strength. In fact, Lewis even doubles up on like some of the same kind of lines that he writes in English literature. He's writing also in this book uh, because he's dealing with the same issue of 
the Renaissance magicians. And then he's saying that these guys at nice, they are essentially like the, you know, the later offspring of what was those yeah. Renaissance magicians. Now they are, uh, what is he? The new Goetia. Uh, and there's, this really mm-hmm. it, with, with all this nuance with the magic stuff, there's this really interesting passage in English literature where Lewis says that there were, uh, critics, during the time of the Renaissance who maintained that even those magicians who were trying to practice the, the white magic, the magia, he says that they even maintained that that would ultimately lead to the, uh, the bad kind to the Goetia. And he Uh says, then he Uh says, I am not going to make a judgment upon that. (laughs) And he leaves it at Uh that. Uh, but it's interesting that in that hideous strength, I really think he does make a judgment upon it, especially with how he's portraying Merlin uh, not just the part we read, but elsewhere too. Um, it's uh-huh. you, it's described that what Merlin was doing was even unlawful in his time. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really really interesting to compare English literature with that hideous strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I can't help but think of the whole Harry Potter world. Um, and I know that there are folks who object to um, object to that magic working scene, but. Um, I love that Rowling has said that she can't walk through a room and not and see a book by C.S. Lewis and not stop and pick it up. And I think that what you see is with the death of um, Voldemort at the hands of the loving Harry, the resurrected and loving Harry, you see a kind of death of the Goetia, right? A triumph of the Magia that that although there are some forces arrayed. Um, there is there is a possibility for spells, right? For the for the right words spoken at the right time with the right motive in the heart, then that good, the resurrected good, can overcome that evil that divides, right? You know, Voldemort divides his soul, but but um, but Harry unites the people, and you see that kind of triumph not only in the in the uh, the nod of acknowledgement between uh, Draco and Harry much later, you know, 19 years later, but you also see the triumph of Draco's mother um, and her love for her son trumps her love for the, uh, for the evil one. And yeah. So even there, there's some stuff to play around with. Yeah. I don't know enough about the Harry Potter stories. I read, I think the first book when I was a kid and I don't think I read any of the other ones. They bear, I think they bear careful reading and okay. And I find a real a lot of elements of Christianity there. Oh yeah, I I've heard the same. Even though uh, it probably wasn't like intended, it's like you can't you can't help but express it, uh, or or you can't help but uh, you know accidentally express it. I suppose. Yeah, the work of John Granger, a Hogwarts professor, is uh, is worth mentioning here. He's done some interesting stuff on that. Okay, but on we go. Yes, take a look at the final section. Uh, we finally made it. <laughs> uh, and this is the section where we have a really interesting conversation between Ransom and Merlin. And Ran- or, uh, Merlin is all about like, hey, you brought me back. Let me use my powers and let's make this happen. Let's get after it. And uh, Ransom uh, says no. I, this actually feeds into exactly what we were talking about. Ransom, uh, and there's further things beyond just this we can back up, but Ransom tells him, uh, no, said the director, I forbid you to speak of it. This is the top of 286. If it were possible, it would be unlawful. 
Whatever of spirit may still linger in the earth has withdrawn 1,500 years further away from us since your time. You shall not speak a word to it. You shall not lift your little finger to call it up. I command you. It is in this age utterly unlawful. Hitherto, he had been speaking sternly and coldly. Now, he leaned forward and said in a different voice, It never was very lawful, even in your day. Remember, when we first knew that you would be awakened, we thought you would be on the side of the enemy. And because our Lord does all things for each, one of the purposes of your reawakening was that your own soul should be saved. Mm. And that was uh, just makes me think like Merlin's soul was in peril because of what mm-hmm. he, he was doing. His dabbling uh, was mm-hmm. in peril and he's actually getting his soul saved by being uh, awoken. And it's just a, a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. And he humbles himself. He sinks back into his chair like a man unstrung. If I am not to work for you in that fashion, then you have taken into your house a silly bulk of flesh. For I am no longer much of a man of war. Um, and and then I love this. No power that, it, not that way either, says Ransom. No power that is merely, meaning purely, earthly, will serve against that the hideous strength. And Merlin quite quite you know wisely says then let us all to prayers yep um but there i was not reckoned of much account they called me the devil's son um and but yes the for merlin to say some prayers is a good idea Mm -hmm. ransom uh, pulls him that way yeah and then with the very first section i think it was um where we're talking about lewis and the apocalyptic kind of stuff we see Mm -hmm. that come up here then with this conversation between the two uh, cause ransom, um, is telling Merlin, Hey, we're not going to use your powers to, you know, interact with the neutrals. Things now are in God's hands. Maleldo mm-hmm. now is in charge and he's going to orchestrate, uh, this, this whole, uh, you know, spiritual interaction coming to earth. Uh, so let's see, uh, page 287 beginning with suffer me to speak. He said at last, or slay me, if you will, for I am in the hollow of your hand. I had heard of it in my own days that some had spoken with the gods. Blaze, my master, knew a few words of that speech. Yet these were, after all, powers of earth. For I need not teach you. You know more than I. It is not the very Oyersu, the true powers of heaven, whom the greatest of our craft meet, but only their earthly wraiths, their shadows. Only the Earth Venus, the Earth Mercurius, not Paralandra herself, not Vera Trilbia himself. It is only... I am not speaking of the wraiths, said Ransom. I have stood before Mars himself in the sphere of Mars and before Venus herself in the sphere of Venus. It is their strength and the strength of some greater than they which will destroy our enemies. Meaning, Maleldil is ultimately the, the one um, orchestrating this whole you know, the in times type of scenario. Yes. But also, um, Oh, what is it? What is it? What's the name of, of Jupiter? Joe. I know Saturn yeah. is, is, Oh, uh, no, no, no. In, uh, in old solar, is that Glundandra? And so it's those two. It's, uh, I think that it's Jupiter and Saturn also, in addition to Melodil. Oh yeah. And I yeah, love yeah, it sure. that, that, uh, that for Merlin, just the name of the Oyersu, 
uh, became becomes his password. But Ransom has met and spoken face to face with them, and and Merlin's undone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be clear that Melildo himself is not actually portrayed as like coming down. Um, I think this passage, uh, well, this whole section of if we back up a bit, uh, what it says that uh, the air that humanity made was that they they broke into the heavens and so now it broke the law by which god was not going to uh, then break into our sphere Mm -hmm. and 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 interact and he's saying well now that barrier has been broken so now god is essentially allowing or meleldil you know in this case allowing um jove and um saturn uh they're Mm -hmm. now going to come in and He's saying that that is okay yeah. because the... the Glendandra and Lurga. By the way, if you haven't been listening to Holst's The Planets, um, time to pull that out. Uh, because as Spud points out, as Michael Ward points out, you know, that's part of the soundtrack of the creation of these books. And, oh my gosh, the, the, the section on Jupiter and the planets just really captures all of this. Yeah, I haven't listened to it for and a there while. I spoke but... with the true Oyarsu face-to-face. Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, I I haven't listened to it for a while. I should actually play it on here oh, at some yeah. point because it's it's so good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right. and I have become a bridge, says Ransom, and it's he's he says through a man whose mind is opened to be so invaded is um, how they're trying to work magic. Um, one by uh, who by his own will once opened it. I take our fair lord to witness. That if it were my task, I would not refuse it, but he will not suffer a mind that still has its virginity to be so violated. And through a black magician and through a black magician's mind, their purity can neither can nor will operate. When it was dabbled in the days when dabbling had not been begun to be evil or was only just beginning, and also a Christian man and a penitent, a tool, I must speak plainly, good enough to be so used and not too good. So that's him describing Merlin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in all these Western parts of the world, there were, there was only one man who lived in those days and it could still be recalled you and yeah. And, and, and it just dissolves Merlin into manly tears. It's fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, the way that he orders Merlin around, I mean, forget about it. It's just, yeah, it's fantastic. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Well, We've been talking for quite a long time. I don't want to. I don't want to hold you all night. I, like I said, we could read every oh, line of this good. chapter. It's so good. It's true. It's uh, true. Um, is there anything else that uh, you notice that you want to mention here? Um, I just I love uh, I love that whole mention of the emperor and Merlin casting about to go. Okay, who can we have for help? Yeah. And the sense that there is something so deeply unsettled because there is no emperor, right? And also, I mean, I think that there's something to be said. Um, uh, as a non-Catholic, it's unsettling for me not to have a pope, right? In Merlin's time, there was a pope and there was an emperor, and you could rely on both of them. And we, you know, Christianity has has so changed that that um that that unified authority isn't there anymore. Well, to your I mean, point, fifty four did us some damage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to your point, Andrew, the very end of two eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Merlin asks, but what of the true clerks? Is there no help in them? It cannot be that all your priests and bishops are corrupted. 
The faith itself is torn in pieces since your day and speaks with a divided voice. Even if it were made whole, the Christians are but a tenth part of the people. There is no help there. So, yeah, yeah that, that's the idea of that uh, separation of the, the Christian people. Um, and I think Lewis sees that as a, a bad thing. And sure. I, I think it is a bad thing. Uh, I think most of us would agree. The, yeah, the question, I suppose, would be how you can actually undo the schism if you can. Yeah. Well, and, and even to pray for Christian unity. I mean, um, people don't think to do that. And part of what we have been looking at in, um, in, uh, in the Latin letters is how that was the constant topic of prayer between Lewis and, and St. Giovanni yeah. was unity. And, and when was the last time you prayed for the reunification of the church? You know, that, that should be a piece of it. Uh, I wanted to find what, what of the true clerics, a cleric is a cleric. And you'll, you'll remember reading your, your uh, Chaucer in Middle English. There was a cleric of Oxenford, right? And Lewis's uh, pen name for himself was N.W. Clerk. Um, I know not which, you know, student at Oxford. Um, uh, not Wilk is what the, is what the N.W. St- stands for. Um, yeah. And I, I think that Ransom speaks more pessimistically than Lewis does. Uh, the the faith speaks with a divided voice, but at the preface to mere Christianity, Lewis says something or a someone speaks with the same voice, and that's yeah. He says at their at the center of each denomination where her truest children dwell, something or someone speaks with the same voice. And so, while yes, England is shattered and divided, the Holy Spirit is still speaking, especially to those believers, regardless of denomination. And he's saying the same thing. There's no emperor and the guy's undone or thing. And then he goes, uh, you know, asking about, well, what about all these other places? And uh, Ransom's like, uh, well, you're not going to find help. Uh, you know, it's, the corruption has spread out. Mm. Uh, oh, this is, a, along with that, this is uh, Merlin commenting in the middle of 290. He says, there were tales in my day of some such men who knew not the articles of our most holy faith but who worshiped God as they could and acknowledged the law of nature. I just found that a interesting point because of Lewis's focus on the natural law or Tao and how that is something yeah. that is universal for humanity. Uh, and even if they, in this case, uh, they haven't heard of the most holy faith. And acknowledge the law of nature. And by capitalizing it, he calls our attention to what he's just been talking about in mere Christianity. That means the law of right and wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and, uh, and it talks about, I think that that alludes to some of the good paganism. And we see that in Emeth. We just talked about Emeth in our, in our episode on the last battle on Pice of Jack, um, that those who truly seek after a good God, there's only one good God. Um, and Lewis was not a syncretist. Lewis was not a universalist. Lewis, nor I believe that all religions, you know, lead to God in the same way, but, Emeth was worshiping Tash as if Tash was good and Tash was not. And Aslan assigns that worship to himself. And so, um, and Lewis famously says, yes, Christ is the only way. No one comes to the Father but through him, but we're not quite sure, I'm paraphrasing badly, we're not quite sure what through him means. 
And certainly we see God in the great divorce thrusting mercy on anyone who will sit still for it. So mm-hmm. he will pull whoever he can, but Ransom even says, yeah, no hope there. All right. Well, thank you for talking with me so long. This was oh this goodness. was awesome. <laughs>